morning everybody. Um, our reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 14, um, verses 66 to 72, and also we will read chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This ends the reading of God's word. Brenda. Well, good morning, church family. Well, I'm very grateful to Alita and Raymond for coming in yesterday and putting up these palm branches, which are here and, of course, out in the foyer, reminding us that we're now at the start of Holy Week. And, of course, the Friday and Easter Sunday are the two most important days in the Christian calendar, and I do hope you'll make sure that you're with us. But that's not all that's happening at St Barnabas this week. So uh, on Tuesday evening, we have at 7.15 an evening of praise and worship over Zoom. 
And if you'd like to join us for that, we'd love to have you with us. Then on Wednesday night, as we continue our journey to the cross and the resurrection in Mark's Gospel, we're privileged to have Dr. Peter Smuts with us from the Bible Institute. And we'll be starting that evening off at 7 o'clock with supper, uh, a socially distanced supper. Uh, I think it's, I think it's Bogorty that's on the menu. Um, anyway, I like it, I hope you do too. At 7 o'clock Wednesday. And then Friday and Sunday, we're in here at 9.30 as normal. So do please join us for these events as we get it fixed into our minds, all that God has done to put us right with himself. Well now, please keep your Bible open at the passage that Brenda has just read for us. And I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Well, our gracious God, we do thank you and praise you for giving us a clear and a living word. We do pray that you would help each one of us according to our needs, uh, that you would remove the barriers that prevent us from listening, from trusting and obeying. And we do ask that your word to us this morning would do us good and would cause us to honour you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know whether you picked up this week in the news that archaeologists in Israel have uh, announced the discovery of dozens of biblical documents in caves near the Dead Sea. It's the first new discovery in the area since the famous Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered by a shepherd in 1947. The documents in this latest discovery, they reckon, are around 2,000 years old, and they include uh, copies of the Greek text of the Old Testament book of Zechariah, who, as we've been discovering in our journey in Mark, predicted in great detail Uh, so much of what happened to the Lord Jesus in the last week of his life on earth. And I think it's it's a marvellous reminder to us that as we open our NIV Bibles today, that what we have in our hands is not something that someone made up last week. No, it goes right the way back to the very first generation of believers. And God has caused it to be wonderfully preserved so that men and women today can know the Lord Jesus Christ through the testimony of the eyewitnesses, uh, the people who were actually there at the time and who saw what happened. So I do hope this marvellous discovery is going to encourage us to listen even more carefully to what God is saying to us in this last section of Mark's Gospel. Now last week we saw the religious trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin and what a corrupt, messy affair that was. Now this morning we come to the political trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate which is really no more than a pathetic, insulting, demeaning courtroom drama. And then before that of course we have the famous failure of Peter denying the Lord Jesus three times. 
So, why does the Bible tell us about the terrible failures of these two men? Uh, Peter and Pilate. Uh, Is it so that we might feel superior? Or is it perhaps something else? That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. As I reflect on it, it seems to me that Peter and Pilate are rather like patients in a hospital, sick patients. And they remind us, don't they, just how much the world needs the doctor who is Jesus. One of these two men, Peter, is a believer, but he fails. And therefore we learn from him how important the mercy of Jesus is. And the other man is Pilate, who of course is an unbeliever. But he also fails, and we learn from him how important the power of Jesus is. If you press it a bit further, Peter, I think, is a picture of the church. Frail, feeble, failing, and needing to know where salvation is to be found. And Pilate is a picture of the state. And he needs to know where real authority and power are to be found. So, with that in mind, I've got just two headings for you this morning. The first is the church and the merciful saviour, because although we are much more frail and feeble and failing than we would like to think, Jesus is infinitely more merciful. And then our second heading is the state and the unstoppable king. Because although the state likes to think it's in control and might even appear to be in control, the truth is that Jesus is always, always in charge. And you and I need to remind ourselves of that regularly. So, first, the church and the merciful saviour. If you fix your eyes on verse 66 of chapter 14, we find that Peter has followed Jesus. Uh, Remember, will you, that he said he was going to be courageous. He is beginning to follow. He's certainly the most passionate of all the disciples. But even the keenest Christian can fall. And the Bible wants you and I to know that. He's perhaps the most famous of the apostles. But here we see that he's not part of the solution. He's actually part of the problem. And God's people, from beginning to end, are actually just a long line of moral failures. I'm a moral failure. My dear friend, you are a moral failure. And of course, that's why we're so grateful for Jesus, isn't it? You would think that the world would get our message. I mean, it's really very simple, isn't it? And it goes like this. I fail, Jesus saves. But somehow the world isn't hearing that. It doesn't even think that's what the church is saying. Instead, the world thinks the church is saying something like this. Do your best. We're not really totally sure where Jesus fits in. Perhaps he's just an inspiration to us. But Jesus is not 
an inspiration for us to be perfect, that would be desperately depressing. Jesus is single-handedly forgiving imperfect people like me and like you. Now what Peter does here in chapter 14 is truly terrible. He abandons his master in order to save himself. But you see, if we're Christians, I don't think you and I are going to read this and say to ourselves, well I'm better than Peter. I don't think we're meant to be looking down on Peter. This story is actually just a mirror. And it makes, it makes us say to ourselves, actually, that could be me. So can the great apostle fall? Yes, he can. Can you fall? Yes, you can. Can I fall? Yes, I can. I want you to notice, really important this, how small the trigger is that brings Peter down. Uh, Remember that at this point he's not in front of a Jewish council. Uh, He's not in front of a Roman official. He's challenged by a girl. Probably just a young girl. A servant girl, we're told. But she speaks in such a way uh, as if being a Christian is to be on the wrong side. I guess all of us know that kind of conversation you might have, perhaps over supper at a friend's house or something. Somebody gives their their opinion and the impression is that if you are not with them 100%, you're against them. And being a polite person, as I'm sure you are, you don't want to be against them, so you say nothing. You're not really quite sure what to do. Look at what she says in verse 67. She says, you also were with that Nazarene, Jesus. And if you look down to verse 69, she says, this fellow Peter is one of them. And in verse 70, she says, or the people standing there say, surely you are one of them. And immediately, the thing for Peter to do is to hide or be quiet or deny Because, do we not know ourselves that from primary school all the way through to old age to be part of the in crowd is actually extremely important to us. And to be included is very precious and it takes a great deal of courage to stand against the popular opinion of the moment. I guess in the West and in Cape Town that pressure is usually verbal or it's emotional. But even then uh, we find it difficult that someone might be disappointed in us uh, or be negative towards us or say something mildly hurtful because of our faith. But of course there are many places in the world today as as Gillian prayed where the dangers are, are infinitely greater than that. So, Open Doors this week sent out an email asking for us to pray for a certain Iranian couple who've been arrested for their faith and then sent to one of the most dangerous prisons in the Middle East. 
The husband is in his 60s, he suffers from advanced Parkinson's disease, he's extremely unlikely to survive the prison sentence and the wife has been tortured multiple times. Contrast that with Peter in our passage, who falls extremely quickly. I mean, he just rolls over, doesn't he? And he's not being challenged by the secret police. He's not being challenged by Muslim extremists. This isn't Al-Qaeda with the the thumbscrews. He's challenged by a servant girl. How embarrassing is the denial? In verse 68 he says, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And in verse 71 we're told he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Remember, will you, that this is after Jesus has called Peter to be a disciple and after Peter has been with Jesus for three years and seen the miracles and heard the sermons. This is the man who professed to know that Jesus is the Christ. He witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave and he was there in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. And this is the man who said he would stick with Jesus whatever happened. And Peter had been loved by Jesus more than he'd been loved by anybody. And yet when he's put on the spot, Jesus says, I don't know him. Now friends, I think, I think this is proof positive that the secret of Christianity is not that we are strong and can keep ourselves in the faith. It is that Jesus Christ is strong and he can keep us in the faith. Because, you see, Peter is capable of failing the the simplest imaginable test. And I'm capable of failing the simplest imaginable test and so are you capable of failing the simplest possible test. But Jesus... Jesus stands the toughest test of all. Now, I'm not suggesting that means that you and I can just lie back and relax. No. God looks for faithfulness and for discipline in all his children. But in the end, our security as Christian people is in the faithfulness of Jesus. And it's not in ourselves. And I wonder whether the Lord has yet taught you how weak you are. I wonder if the Lord has taught you that every single day of your life you're walking into a spiritual battlefield. I wonder if the Lord has taught you to turn to him every single morning and say, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil because I'm capable of falling very quickly, very easily, and very badly. And Lord, you're the only one who can help me. That, I think, would be a very good thing, wouldn't it, for all of us to be praying every morning. And then look at the the sad outcome for Peter. And not only is he tricked very easily, 
Not only does he say these terribly embarrassing things, but look at the outcome in verse 72. The rooster crowed twice and Peter broke down and wept. You know, I I wonder if anybody else even heard the rooster crowing. I mean, he probably crowed every day. They probably didn't hear it. But for Peter, it was like an electric shock. Because in that moment, he remembered that Jesus had said, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter's weeping is, as according to the other Gospels, it is the repentance that separates him from Judas because Judas betrayed Jesus, but he never turned back to ask for forgiveness. Now again, friends, why are we being told these things? Well, surely it is to remind us, isn't it, that the, the road of sin is never happy for very long. Sin can be deceptively happy for a short time. But it always ends in sadness. And if you're a believer, in the end you'll come to grief. And if on the road of sin you've been successful perhaps and highly thought of, the fall, when it eventually comes, can be extremely painful. So why do all four of the Gospel writers tell us about Peter's failure? That the keenest disciple denied the greatest person the world has ever seen in the strongest possible language and with the saddest outcome. And I think the answer is to show us that Jesus is the key to Christianity. You see, the work of salvation is not only necessary, which is why Jesus has to go to the cross, but the point is he's going to have to do it alone because the disciples and the church cannot and will not contribute in any way whatsoever to the work of salvation. It's not going to be Peter supporting Jesus like he promised, because he doesn't. And it's not Peter waving his sword around in the garden who's going to save the day. No, no, Peter's the problem. And I'm the problem. And you're the problem. Now there might be somebody uh, maybe here this morning or listening and you're thinking to yourself, you know what Simon, I've been hurt by the church or by other Christians and therefore I'm actually not interested in Christian things anymore. Now I know that kind of suffering can be very real. I don't want to deny it for a moment. There are too many stories like that in church life and those stories need to be heard and we need to be patient and loving and kind towards those we have hurt. But friends, at the same time, it is not the whole story. Because, you see, if we were to draw a pie chart of our life, a certain section of the chart, yes, it is the hurt that's been done to us. And we've all experienced certain hurts. But there's also a very large section of the pie chart which is the hurt that has been done by us to Christ. 
And we need to acknowledge that. You know, a Christian may well be wounded by life and by other people. Most Christians are. But a Christian, a true Christian, is also someone who pleads guilty to wounding Christ. And we may feel our hurts very deeply. But you see, we won't experience the mercy of God transforming us until, like the prodigal son, we go to Christ and say, I've wounded you, I've disobeyed you, I've rebelled against you, I've turned my back on you. And it's only then you see that we actually experience the mercy of Christ and it's the mercy of Christ that begins to heal us and bring recovery and even the ability to forgive people who've hurt us and wronged us. So I think Mark chapter 14 is preaching as clearly as possible that the Apostle Peter is part of the problem and Jesus is the only merciful solution. So that's the first thing this morning. The church and the merciful saviour. Then the second thing is the state and the unstoppable king. Now this brings us into uh, chapter 15 where we meet this man, Pilate. And Pilate's problem is not that he denies Jesus, though he does. It is that he sentences Jesus to death. Pontius Pilate was appointed by Tiberius, Caesar, in 26 AD and he served as governor of Judea for 10 years. He had an army of 5,000 soldiers at his disposal and uh, historians tell us that he was a ruthless man but the Gospels tell us that he was a compromiser. Uh, There was no archaeological evidence for Pilate's existence until 1961 when they discovered a slab of stone in Caesarea with Pilate's name inscribed on it and quite a lot of other information about his job as governor. Now if Peter teaches us that we should be grateful for our merciful saviour Pilate teaches us that we should be grateful for our powerful king. Because, think about it, Pilate fails to honour Jesus and yet he ends up doing precisely what God has always planned. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, you'll see that the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. Why do they do that? Well, because they don't have the authority to sentence Jesus to death. Only Pilate can do that. And uh, if they'd taken Jesus to Pilate on a charge of blasphemy, which is actually what they decided Jesus was guilty of back in chapter 14, Pilate would have said, well, who cares? I'm not interested in your God. Uh, Blasphemy? Not interested. But they've obviously told Pilate that Jesus claimed to be a king. You can pick that up in the flow of the narrative. So they're saying that Jesus is a threat to Rome and Pilate needs to do something about it. But you'll notice in verse 2 
But Pilate sees no threat in Jesus whatsoever. So a literal translation of verse 2 would be Pilate saying to Jesus, You, King of the Jews, remember, will you, that at this point Jesus has already been beaten up. And as Pilate looks at him, he simply can't believe that this feeble, frail-looking man could possibly be a king or any kind of threat whatsoever. And Jesus' reply in verse 2 is brilliant. Because the sense of what Jesus is saying in the original language is, Pilate, you decide, you make your mind up, you work it out. And of course that's the key question, isn't it? Is Jesus Christ the king or not? And if he is, what kind of king is he? In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is a very different kind of king to the kings that you and I might read about in history books. Because normally, kings exercise their power by subduing or conquering their enemies. But Jesus is going to exercise his power by dying for his enemies. So he's a very different sort of king. But he is a king. He is a king. And because Pilate has been given the job of acting as the magistrate, he should be seeking the truth. That's what magistrates are supposed to do. And everything Jesus has said and done demands, doesn't it, that the magistrate should make a very carefully considered decision. Because everybody knew that Jesus had made a massive impact on the world of Pilate's day. Pilate knew that. Pilate needed to make a careful decision. And, by the way, so do we. Because Jesus Christ has made a massive impact on the world of our day. Clive James was a popular TV talk show host. He wasn't a believer. And uh, on one occasion he said, um, I'm not a believer because if God was real, he would have made some impact on the world. What a ridiculous comment. Because of course he has made an absolutely massive impact on the world and therefore he demands a careful decision. Pilate should be weighing up both sides of the case, but you see, Pilate is only listening to the shouting. Unfortunately, many churches are doing that today too. Pilate had a whole army at his disposal to deal with a riot if he needed it, but he's weak. And Jesus knows that Pilate is weak, not strong enough to make a decision. And so, what does Jesus do? He says nothing. He simply prepares to die, which is, of course, why he's come. And you'll notice that not only does Pilate refuse to make a decision about the identity of Jesus, but he also refuses to make a decision about the innocence of Jesus. In verse 8, the crowd come to Pilate, 
and uh, every year at Passover it was traditional for the authorities to release a prisoner and the religious leaders stir up the crowd to ask Pilate to release a convicted murderer called Barabbas. We'll see in verse 9 that Pilate suggests to the crowd they ask him to release Jesus. That would get him off the hook. But in verse 11, the, the leaders push really hard for Barabbas to be released instead. And Pilate says to the leaders, I want you to make the decision about Jesus. Please, will you make the decision for me, verse 12? I mean, it's pathetic. And the religious leaders shout, crucify him. He asks in desperation again, verse 14, what crime has he committed? They don't answer. Crucify him, they say, and Pilate caves in. Now here's something interesting. Elsewhere we're told that the first name of Barabbas was Jesus. I wonder if you knew that. The surname Barabbas is made up of two words, Bar Abba, son of the father. So the name of this murderer is Jesus, son of the father. And he's going to be set free and Jesus Christ, the son of the heavenly father, is going to be crucified. Now you couldn't actually have a clearer picture of substitution than this. Jesus, the innocent son of God, dies. Barabbas, the guilty murderer, goes free. Now, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. It's an outrageous exchange. But Pilate refuses to make a decision. Uh, as one writer puts it, the governor was governed. He got the crowd, effectively, to make the decision for him. And that's extremely embarrassing, isn't it? And shameful for a person in a position with magisterial authority. And Pilate, of course, has gone down in history as the man who wouldn't make a decision about Jesus. And the strange thing is, of course, that there are plenty of people today who know all about Pilate's reputation and yet they won't make a decision about Jesus either. Pilate could see that Jesus was innocent of any crime, verse 14. He could see that the opposition to Jesus was corrupt, verse 10. He could have set Jesus free and that would have been the just thing to do. And if the crowd didn't like it, well, he had this army at his disposal to restore order. But Pilate's true character, notice this, his true character is revealed in verse 15, isn't it? He wanted to please the crowd. Now again I ask, why are we being told this? Well I think we're being told this to teach us that the world, whether it's an individual or whether it's the state or a government, the world simply cannot be trusted to get Jesus right 
or to make an honest decision about him. But even more importantly, we're being told that the state cannot block the plan of God. I mean, Pilate might be the governor. He may represent all of the power and authority of Rome. But in the only event for which Pilate is remembered, he's actually only an instrument in the hands of God. And in the same way today, whatever decision the state makes, whatever decision the ANC might make, whatever decision secular power might make, they cannot stop or frustrate the purposes of God. They can't. And that's why in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and says that Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan. And Peter tells the crowd, you killed him, but God raised him. So you see, for all of the power at Pilate's disposal, he's simply an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. I conclude. Peter's failure in chapter 14 gives us cause to thank God for his mercy. And I hope that you might go away from church this morning and might say, I was reminded this morning of Peter's failure, which is actually part of my own story. And without the mercy of Jesus, I would have no hope. And I hope you might also say as you go home today, I was reminded this morning that for all of his political and military power, Pilate had actually no real power at all. And I'm so thankful for the gracious, sovereign, overruling power of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this window into ourselves and especially into the greatness of Christ. We pray that you would help us today to rejoice in his mercies which are sufficient for our failings and to rejoice in his power which is sufficient for the fulfilment of all of your wonderful plans and purposes. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.